praise you, Jesus. God, we are so grateful for this time. We are so grateful for this time. You are good to us. You are kind. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are gentle. You are good. God, you are all of these things for all of eternity because you don't change. God, you are welcoming. You are inviting. You love us deeply, more than we could ever imagine, and we are so, so thankful. God, I pray that not a soul would leave this place without knowing, without a shadow of a doubt, how deeply you love them, how deeply you care for them, the extent that you travel to reach them, the extent that you travel to grace them, to grant them life. God, we are so thankful for your kindness. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would continue to lead this time. Where would we be without you? <laughs> uh, we need so much clarity, Lord. We need so much of your comfort and your presence. Would you grant it to us now as we continue to sing praises as we flip through pages, read words, but in fact, every opportunity to see your face and enjoy your company. Thank you for your sweet, comforting, non-anxious presence. <laughs> uh, God, help me to be good at getting out of the way that people would see Jesus. We're grateful. Amen. You guys may be seated. Happy anniversary, y'all. I feel like this is uh, becoming a bit of a tradition uh, where I come and I preach on your anniversary. I think this might be the third time, so uh, I'm grateful to be here, uh, grateful to celebrate with you guys. It's in the season of Pentecost, actually, uh, the birth of the church is something that we celebrated last Sunday, and the season of Pentecost is one that we entered uh, into last Sunday where we now experience the presence of God through the Holy Spirit because of Jesus' ascension into heaven. He now exists among us in a new and transformative way through his spirit. And so I'm grateful to celebrate eight years with you guys as we celebrate the season of the birth of God's church. You know, anniversaries are for celebration and reflection. You think about all the years that you've spent with somebody, whether it's a friend anniversary, a Twitter anniversary, a marriage anniversary, a church anniversary. Uh, you spend the time to reflect on all the challenges of that relationship and all the ways in which you've grown resilient because of that relationship, all the ways in which you've grown kind and good and thoughtful and creative. And I think that anniversaries are such a great time to catch our breath and reflect and let that reflection lead to points of celebration. So part of what I want to do today is to talk about catching our breath, but more particularly talking about catching the breath of God, his spirit. And so if you guys would turn with me to Acts chapter 2, we'll read the first 13 verses, and then we'll jump into some thoughts that I have about the passage. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and it reads, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like a violent rushing wind uh, came from heaven and filled the whole house 
that they were staying in. They saw tongues like flames of fire and uh, and separated and rested on each of them. When they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues, as the Spirit gave them ability to speak. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native tongue? Parthians, Mede, Alamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors both from Rome, Jews and converts, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on that Hennessy. Oh, excuse me, new wine, sorry. (laughs) They're drunk on that new wine. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about catching our breath, but particularly catching the breath of God, because I think so much of this passage, so much of this season, inaugurated by last Sunday, the day of Pentecost, is about what it means to live with the Spirit of God. And as you guys celebrate eight years and you do your reflecting of what these eight years have looked like, all the resilience that you guys have uh, been shaped by, all of the difficulties, hardships, all the beauties, all the community, as we heard in the video, all of those things that make up the last eight years. And I want to really say the last 12 to 13 years because so much work goes into starting churches, as your pastors would know. But how all of those things have shaped you that you could not have gotten to this place without the breath of God. Without God breathing on this work as he did when he first created the heavens and the earth and when he first created man from dust and breathed into his nostril, giving him life. But I want to talk about three things as it relates to the spirit. The first is this, the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is described here in these verses as a violent, rushing wind, and then later as flames of fire. And that's interesting, because wind and fire should not be something unfamiliar to the disciples at this time. If they were committed Jewish disciples, as we know that they were, They would know that wind and fire was the way that God reminded the people of Israel way back then, remind them of his presence, of his guidance, of his leading. This is why Exodus chapter 40 verse 38 we read, For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. So wind and fire or violent wind or fire is not unfamiliar to these disciples. In other words, wind and fire was God's way of reminding them that he truly is Emmanuel, God with them, even before Emmanuel stepped into the scene. But the disciples now find themselves in this room cramped, 
in part because of fear, but that's another sermon. In part because of fear, but they're also waiting. They're waiting for whatever it was that God, Jesus, told them that was coming, the comforter. It wasn't an aimless waiting. It wasn't a hopeless waiting. Rather, it was a waiting where they could experience the grace of God. The kind of waiting that is doing something important in you as you wait. You know what I'm talking about? That kind of waiting that you know God is doing something deeply important in you as you wait. That, that sometimes the waiting process does more in you than receiving the thing that you were waiting for. This is the kind of waiting that the disciples are doing now. In chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us that they waited united in prayer. <clears throat> but I'm going to be honest for a second. <laughs> Have you ever been in a season of waiting? That's not felt very pleasant. <laughs> waiting doesn't oftentimes feel very present, uh, pleasant. And in fact, in my seasons of waiting, my prayers sound very different. <laughs> my prayers sound very, very desperate. <laughs> when I'm in my seasons of waiting, my prayers sound very passionate and very desperate. And this is perhaps the kind of praying that these disciples are doing. Because as I said before, time for another sermon, right? These disciples were waiting in fear because they wondered if their fate was going to be that of the one of their leader. So they hid, but they waited in prayer, desperately asking God and wondering if he was going to be with them. The disciples, in a way, were probably trying to catch their breath in these moments. Some of them were probably still catching their breath or getting their breath knocked out of them because of what just happened a few weeks prior, their leader being crucified. Or maybe catching their breath from what they just saw a few days prior, watching Jesus ascend and disappear into a cloud. Or maybe some of them are still trying to catch their breath with everything that's happened to them and wondering if this same Jesus will return in the same way that the two white-robed angels said that they would. They're probably still trying to catch their breath. And I don't blame them for it because if I had lived through the things that they were living through in the last few months... I would too be trying to catch my breath from all of the things that I have seen. My leader being arrested, my leader being uh, uh, flogged and crucified, my leader dying and that leader coming back and that leader telling me that he's going to leave and us wanting to follow and not having all the clarity. I would also too be trying to catch my breath. And so it's very fitting in a sense that we're talking about breath because breath is how God describes his spirit. The word used for spirit in the Bible, including this passage here, is ruach in Hebrew and pneuma in Greek. But pneuma is not only the Greek word for spirit, but also for wind and for breath. And out of the three words, breath catches my attention the most. 
It catches my attention because breath is the one thing that I know I cannot live without, but only notice its importance when I don't have it. It's the one thing that I know I cannot live without, but it's the only thing I notice that's important when I don't have it. Have you ever been punched in the stomach? Feels like you got your breath knocked out of you? You ever lose, lose your breath in a hit workout? <laughs> Feels like you can't capture yourself again? Have you ever had some bad news dropped on you? Feels like the air's been sucked right out of you. Church, your breath is your life. Your breath is the essence of who you are. The breath of God is no different. The breath of God is another way of talking about God's presence with us. You know, I've always wondered, you know, I'm not a science guy, but I think I've always wondered, especially as I've read passages of uh, pertaining to the Holy Spirit and breath, I've always wondered how this whole breath and oxygen thing works, right? And one day I got curious and I searched up the greenhouse effect, right? So if you have any scientists in the building, I'm going to be very basic with my knowledge of the greenhouse effect. Right? You come to me afterwards. But as I learned more about the greenhouse effect, what I realized is that the greenhouse effect is the process by which the earth's atmosphere only allows in the right amount of heat from the sun and it traps it into our atmosphere so that the earth's temperature is the right amount for life on this planet to be possible. The sun is beaming with its hot rays ready to scorch anything in its way. But the earth has this protective layer around it made up of different gases, right? And this protective layer only allows the right amount of heat from the sun because too much heat scorches us. Too little heat freezes us. And so this is why the atmosphere traps the right amount of heat and it circulates it all around the planet. But here's the most interesting part to me, at least. Heat is not the only thing that the atmosphere traps in. It also traps in and circulates oxygen, our breath. That with every breath that we exhale, it now becomes part of the stratosphere that we exist in. Not just for us here in this space, not just for those of us in Atlanta or in Georgia, but all across the world. And not only across the world in this time, but across the world in all of time. It traps and it circulates our oxygen. And that to me is fascinating. This means that trapped in our atmosphere and circulating in our atmosphere is all of the air and oxygen that has ever been breathed. That's really comforting to me. And I'm going to tell you why. Because in some mysterious way, this means that the air that my great-grandmother lived with is the same air that in some ways I live with today. This means that in some mysterious way, her breath in is my breath out. This is the breath that we hear about in the beginning of God's story. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the breath 
of God or the Ruach of God was hovering over the surface of the water. God's first breath is still blowing through this world, filling our lungs with life as it once did in the very beginning. In a mysterious way, every time we take a breath in, we are taking in a baby's first breath and someone else's last. This is what makes Jesus' moment on the cross so deeply poetic and powerful. Luke chapter 23, verse 46 tells us that he, at that moment, breathed his last. It was the breath of God that Jesus gave up at that moment. It was the breath of God that raised Jesus back to life. It is now the breath of God that came into this room at Pentecost like a hurricane that set these disciples on fire. All because through his sacrifice, Jesus breathed out into the atmosphere his breath so that we by faith can breathe it in. I love the way Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor says it. She says, on the day of Pentecost, God wanted to make sure that Jesus' friends were inheritors of Jesus' breath. Church, the power of the Holy Spirit isn't to help us see into the future to see who we'll marry. The power of the Holy Spirit isn't to see into the future to see what career we end up with. The power of the Holy Spirit isn't to magically get around our challenges and obstacles. Instead, the power of the Holy Spirit is to get Jesus inside of you in such a way that you cannot deny it. The power of the Holy Spirit is to get the life of Jesus working inside of you in ways that you didn't imagine were possible. The power of the Holy Spirit is to bring you into the family of God and live out the family resemblance of love, peace, and justice. This is precisely why Romans chapter 8 tells us, for all those led by God's Spirit are God's children. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Church, look, life comes at us fast. As y'all celebrate eight years and as all of us live lives in the way that we do, Life comes at us fast and hard, and some of us are just trying to catch our breath. And the invitation this morning is not to just catch ours, but to catch his breath. But not only do we need to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to talk about the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 tells us that the crowds were saying to one another, what does this mean? So as the disciples go off and they start talking in languages that they didn't previously know how to speak, The crowds walked around listening to their native tongue being spoken, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, church, look, I I can sit here and preach for hours about the many different purposes of the Holy Spirit. But one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit that I see clearly in this passage is to create solidarity among diversity. 
among the many purposes of the Holy Spirit, the one that I want to talk about at this moment that is utmost clear to me in this passage is the purpose to create solidarity among diversity. Now, keep in mind that Jerusalem at this time, historically speaking, is packed with the Jewish diaspora. That those who followed the way of the Jewish tradition that were scattered because of many different exiles that happened throughout the course of their history are now coming into Jerusalem to celebrate one big festival. So you have a lot of Jewish people, but what you do have is a lot of ethnicities, a lot of different languages, and a lot of different cultures, although Jewish, but a lot of different ethnic backgrounds, a lot of different cultural backgrounds in Jerusalem celebrating a Jewish festival. And this is precisely what verses 9 through 11 are referring to. Jerusalem is like New York City in the holidays, full of foreigners, all there to celebrate one thing. But what's interesting is that the Jewish diaspora gets more than just an old tradition. So they're coming in to celebrate what is an old tradition, an old festival, and that's just part of what they do, and it's meaningful to them. But when they come to Jerusalem this time around, with the disciples experiencing the presence of God's breath, they get more than just an old tradition. The story describes something really strange. The Holy Spirit lights these disciples on fire and they begin speaking in different languages that we assume, because of the context, they had never spoken before. In fact, the crowds don't believe what's happening because they assume that Galileans, if I think I might have preached this sermon here before, but Galileans were considered the bottom rung of society at that time because they were part of mixed ethnic uh, cultural backgrounds. And so those, the Jewish diaspora there to celebrate are listening to their native tongues and they saw where it was coming from and who it was coming from. They assumed that it wasn't really happening, that it was just some weird moment in time because it came from the Galileans who they believed were too stupid to speak these different languages. Just read verse 7. They were astounded and amazed saying, look, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And just to give you all some more historical, cultural context, this was the same kind of phrase used when Jesus was being tried at night, a sketchy trial at night, and, and Peter was trying to sneak by, and he's trying to figure out how close do I want to get to Jesus because I don't want to find myself in his position. And as he was talking, trying to figure it out, somebody in the crowd heard him talking and said, hey, Aren't you one of his disciples? For your Galilean accent gave you away. They were astounded and amazed, the crowd said, verse 7. Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And verse 11 tells us exactly what they were saying in those different languages. So it's not... Only important to know that they were speaking languages that they didn't previously know, but what they were saying is primarily most important. They were declaring the magnificent acts of God. In other words, by the power of the Holy Spirit, these disciples were talking about all that God had done through Jesus in languages that they were totally not fluent in. Now that's wild. 
But that's not even what catches my attention. Church, what catches my attention is how God decides to declare these, to these different nations his wonderful acts. How he decides to declare his wonderful acts to these different nations. You see, the way that I see it, if God wanted the nations to know all the wonderful things he's done for the world through Jesus, he could have made the disciples say it in Greek or Aramaic, the common language of the day, the dominant language of the day. Because you see, if it was about just telling them what God did through Jesus, and honestly, if he wanted to be most efficient, he would have just said it in English, excuse me, Hebrew. English, Hebrew, kind of the same empire thing, right? If he really wanted to just say it and be most efficient, he would have just said it in Greek or in Aramaic, which were the dominant language of the time, but he didn't. And church, I can't tell you how massively important that is, that God did not choose to be efficient, <laughs> God did not choose to be efficient in declaring what he has done through Jesus to a variety and a diverse group of people. He didn't choose efficiency. Instead, he empowered these low rung of society, unassuming Galileans to speak several languages that they were not familiar with. That is the least efficient thing God could have done. But him doing it that way says something about what he counts important. Let me tell you why this reveals the brilliance of God. God does not reduce us to one common language in order to recognize our value. God does not make us look the same in order to make his pursuit of us worthwhile. God doesn't have to strip us of our language or our ethnic heritage in order to tell us about what he's done to make us his children. To flatten identity is to go against what the gospel of Jesus did. This is what makes verse 8 so powerful to me and what, why it makes it so heartwarming to me as I think about my immigrant parents. When the crowds asked one another, how is it that each of us can hear, can hear them in our own native tongue? It, it, it feels like that question was like heartwarming for them. Like it captured them. How is it that we hear them speaking these things in our native tongue? Look, I can't tell you guys how much it meant to me when Spider-Man in the Spider-Verse, uh, uh, um, you know what I'm talking about. When Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, thank you, Joe, into the Spider-Verse, <laughs> Uh, premiered a few years ago, the first one, not the one that just came out. We haven't seen that one yet. Shh, no spoilers. Um, 
I can't tell you how much it meant to me when it premiered because the whole movie spoke my language. The whole movie spoke my native tongue, the NYC tongue, the hip-hop culture tongue, the sneaker culture tongue, the hybrid culture uh, tongue. The, the, the hybrid culture, what I mean by that is the fact that two things can be true of me <laughs> or that many things can be true of me. But nothing spoke more powerfully to me than watching the moment when Miles Morales bounced between English and Spanish. Nothing spoke more to me. But there was this one moment where he's rushing uh, for school, rushing to get his things together, and he has this exchange with his mom. He said, Mom, where's my laptop? A donde tu lo dejaste? She asked him, where did you leave it? And Miles responds, yo no sé. I don't know. (laughs) I I can't tell y'all how simple that is, but how much it moved me when I watched it because it spoke my experience. I bounced from English and Spanish all the time growing up, listening to Jay-Z with my boys and then listening to Juan Luis Guerra with my mom. (laughs) You know, eating cheeseburgers and fries and pizza with my homies and then going home and eating arroz con habichuela having to translate for my parents when a creditor called the house. (laughs) You know, know, somebody English on the other side, she's like, yo, you got to deal with that, (laughs) right? Reading mail from my parents because oftentimes they didn't understand it. Living as a cultural translator, living in New York, I appreciated so deeply watching a character that embodied my experience. It's so simple, but I felt so seen and welcomed by that exchange. What am I trying to say? There's something about hearing your native tongue. There's something about seeing others engage with your native tongue because it connects you to memories. Your native tongue connects you to memories and environments because language connects you to a people. And if you ask any person in here that's trying to learn or has committed themselves to learning a language that's foreign to them, they will tell you that they needed to learn more than just syntax and grammar. Learning a language is more than just learning syntax and grammar because the essence of learning a language is learning a people. Or as Willie, Dr. Willie Jennings says, to learn a language requires submission to a people. To learn a language requires submission to a people. Sorry, Holy Spirit, we're here. Amen. (laughs) It was God's intention to use his power to enter into the story of the people that he loves. Always. It was always God's intention to enter into the story of the people that he loves. This is why God became flesh. This is why Jesus, a Palestinian-born Jewish boy, is deeply important that we say it that way. Family, God is fluent in people. 
God is fluent in people. God meets you where you are. God doesn't empower us to learn a language so that we can dominate that people. But instead, he teaches us a language so that we would love and serve that people. And it seems like that simple idea goes against everything we've learned about how it's happened in our country. When we stop trying to make people like us and instead begin asking the Holy Spirit to give us the humility to learn the language of others, it's at that point that we begin to understand and love our neighbors well. We are not simply speaking their language. We are helping to create spaces safe enough for all of who they are to enter and feel welcomed and loved and served. This is precisely why Justo Gonzalez, he's a uh, pastor, teacher, historian here in Atlanta, actually. He says the first translator of the gospel is, is the Holy Spirit. And a church that claims to have the Holy Spirit must be willing to follow that lead. This is why it has been said that whereas Babel, Genesis 11, uh, whereas Babel was a monument to human pride, the church is called to be a monument to the humiliation of anyone who seeks to make their language or culture dominant. This is why, I heard somebody say, say it again, I'll say it again. This is why... It has been said, whereas Babel, Genesis 11, read it on your own time, was a monument to human pride, the church is called to be a monument to the humiliation of anyone who seeks to make their language or culture dominant. Look, when the crowds heard the disciples speaking in their native tongue, they heard the sounds of their homeland in a foreign land. Just sit with that for a moment. When the crowds walked around Jerusalem, there for an old tradition, an old meaningful tradition, and yet they got something new. They heard the crowds of unassuming Galileans speaking their languages, but not only speaking their languages, uh, but speaking the wonderful acts of God in Jesus in their tongue. They heard the familiar sounds of their homeland in a strange land. If the Holy Spirit serves any purpose, church, hear me. If the Holy Spirit serves any purpose, it is to inspire courage in us to do what is often disorienting in order to make others feel at home while in a strange land. Because isn't that what Jesus has done? And then lastly, not only do we consider the power of the Holy Spirit, the purpose of the Holy Spirit, but now the presence or the practice of the Holy Spirit. How do we practice a life led by the breath of God? You know, this passage is not the, own, uh, the only reference to the Holy Spirit is when John uh, chapter 3, Jesus was in conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus where Jesus insists on embracing the mysterious nature of the Holy Spirit. So here's this religious leader who uh, has a high respect in in the society around him and is an academic for all intents and purposes and wants to get a grasp on this mysterious figure of the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus talks to him, and in this conversation, he's inviting Nicodemus to say, hey, there's, there's some things you will understand about the Holy Spirit, and then there are other things that you will have to embrace without having full clarity on. That there's a mysterious nature to the way that the Holy Spirit operates in our lives and in the, lives of the, in the life of the church. And he uses wind as a way to explain that. He says to him, the wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound but you don't know where it's coming from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born in the Spirit. God is teaching us that a life led by the Spirit is both powerful and uncontrollable. A combination that makes following Jesus a little intimidating. And it should be no surprise to us that when In our lives, we see the lack of forgiveness, mercy, love, and justice when we know good and well that there are ways to allow fear, allowing the breath of God to take us where he desires. We should be living in this way. I had this conversation with my son a few weeks ago as we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we said is we can't see the wind. We don't know where it comes and we don't know where it's going. But I know it's there when I look at the trees. I know that the spirit, uh, excuse me, I know that the wind is there and I know that the wind is blowing when I see the trees swaying back and forth. When I see the leaves falling and being ripped off because of a violent wind or when I see, you know, my wife's dress flowing in the wind. And while I cannot see it, and while I don't know where it's coming from, Or where it's going, I know it's there. The world and we ourselves may have a difficult time pinpointing how and where and where where the spirit is going. But what we and neither the world should have problem with is seeing how the spirit in our lives has an impact. The Holy Spirit of God helps us in prayer. It helps us in discernment or in decision making. And it helps us in relationship. And this is the gift that a resurrected, ascended Jesus offers us, offers the church, even in the years to come. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for your kindness. Holy Spirit, may you come to us with great power, just as you did the disciples. Holy Spirit, I know sometimes you come quietly and gently. And at times, that's the way that we need you to come. But in the moments, God, where it seems difficult to see, to move, to discern, to decide, to love, to be kind, to find the courage that justice requires, come like a rushing wind to us. Move us as you move, as the wind moves the trees and the branches and the leaves. Move us deeply, God. Jesus, we are grateful for what your resurrection and ascension has done. Now, we don't simply have you beside us, but in your spirit, we have you within us. May you give us the faith to receive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.